as you know, my son is in Qatar and he is uh, working with the refugees and uh, he's kind of in charge of this airplane hangar full of about a thousand refugees and it's his job to distribute clothes and food as they come in and it's been kind of chaos. He was really, uh, every, his reports every time I talked to him were about riots and children rushing the the uh, trucks and just kind of the craziness and, and the frustration he was experiencing. Uh, but then I talked to him on Tuesday and he was so much more relaxed and he just said, yeah, things are, things are pretty good. And I said, what changed? And he said, well, we got a new translator and he's six foot three and he's a legit bodybuilder. Uh, so evidently he has this huge guy who works, has been working with the military as a translator in Afghanistan. And he said, anytime people tried to cut line, this guy would just come get in their face and, and send them back. And all of a sudden everybody started just behaving in a whole new way. He said it was time to put out lunch and they were keeping the food way away from the counter. Uh, and the, the translator looked at him and said, no, put the food up here where I can reach it. And Will said, well, if we put it up there, they're going to rush the, the tables and they'll grab it. And he said the guy pulled himself up to full height and pu- pushed his chest out a little bit. And he said, they will not grab it. <laughs> so uh, that's what Will needed. What Will needed was somebody who was with him that was bigger and stronger than the people who were against him. Uh, I say all that to say this. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need from God right now? We're going to spend this semester studying the book of Revelation. And what the book of Revelation is, is God's gift to a church in times of trouble. It's God's gift to a church in tribulation. He talks to the Apostle John. John is the last living apostle, uh, a church that has watched every one of its church leaders die be hunt, hunted down and, and killed, imprisoned. And now the last leader, John, the apostle, the youngest of the disciples, is on a prison uh, camp on the island of Patmos, uh, working in the marble quarries, and he's going to be there till he dies. And John is, John is sad. John is worried. Uh, he doesn't know what's going to happen to the churches. And the churches are worried. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They're in a cesspool of, of Greek religion where, um, where every religion is just kind of absorbed into this huge soup. And so, uh, they're, the, the mentality of most of the cities is Christianity. That's great. That's one more. Let's build you a little temple and you can worship your gods along with our gods. And we're going to all just kind of have this big syncretistic soup of religion. On the other hand, you have the Roman government just, that's just a steamroller that's crushing everything in its path and it's trying to force everyone to worship the emperor and willing to kill anyone who won't. You've got gross immorality, uh, all kinds of sexual immorality, greed, uh, lying, uh, just every possible kind of sin is rampant. And uh, drunkenness and just overwhelming filth, false teachings everywhere you turn. You have something stuck in your face. What do you need at a time like that? What do you need in a 
year when everything has fallen apart, when everybody seems to be going a little bit crazy, what do you need when it's time for your children to leave and you realize you can't control them? What do you need when your marriage is falling apart, when your health is falling apart? What God thinks you need is a bigger, clearer, truer vision of Jesus. And that's what he gives us. In Revelation, starting Revelation chapter 1, actually all the way through the book of Revelation, we get vision after vision. God wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know how big he is, how good he is, and how complete he is, and how competent he is to take care of his church, even in times like these. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 1. I, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Amen. The Apostle John sees Jesus. This is the Apostle that that Jesus loved. That's how he referred to himself. Remember in the book of John? He's the one who laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He's the the most intimate of the disciples and the youngest of the disciples. Uh, It makes sense that Jesus kind of went had a tender place next to him, taking care of him. We know his mom came to check on him a couple of times. Uh, and he, he, he just loved Jesus. He was always right there next to him. He was so intimate with him. And yet, when he sees Jesus on the island of Patmos, he doesn't go running into his arms. He doesn't go snuggle up to him. He falls on his face as though dead. What is it that, that is in this vision? What is it that God wants us to see that's going to be our comfort in times of tribulation? Well, let's look at the text. The first thing he sees is what? He, he sees purity. He sees purity. White hair like snow. Eyes of fire, the refining fire. Feet of burnished bronze. Everything about him is pure. White. 
What, what, what is it about that? Well, when we see true white, we feel dirty. There, there's, when we see true white, we feel our own sin. When we see true white, when we see true purity, we feel how far short we fall. Uh, John Calvin said that we will often think of ourselves as righteous if we've never seen God. We, we think we, we think we're pretty good. We think we're holy. Uh, it's as if someone who's never seen the color white, uh, assumes that his dinginess, his brownness is white because it's the brightest color he's ever seen. But when you see Jesus, when you see what true holiness, true love looks like, you feel dirty. Uh, many, many years ago, there was a movie called Nell. It was, uh, Jodie Foster was playing the part of this girl who, was raised by her mom out in the woods, and she had never met another human. And she's kind of brought into society. And there's this innocent, this interesting scene. She's she's completely innocent, and she wanders into a bar, and the the men in the bar start to recognize that she's just imitating whatever they do, and they have a little fun with it for a minute. And then one of them wants to see how far it'll go, and so he pulls his shirt off. And now just pulls her dress off and, and stares at him. And, and the fascinating thing is, in her complete innocence, as she just looks at this man, instead of making fun of her or mocking her, he begins to feel shame. He feels his guilt and he, he covers back up and then he addresses uh, her. That, that's the kind of feeling that John has here. He sees this purity that makes him feel his dirt. It's like the words of Isaiah when he sees God on the throne. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He feels his, his sin. The, the second thing he sees is strength. He sees strength. He, he, the voice is the voice of like many waters. I, John is out on an island hearing the crashing of the waves, the, the deafening noise of the waves. And he says the voice is like that when you're on the beach and you can't hear anything else because this wave, this rush of water is drowning everything else out. He, his face is like the shining of the sun at full strength. Uh, you, you know what that's like, right? You can't look at that. You can't even throw your eyes toward the sun for even a few seconds. His face is so strong. His radiance is so strong. You can't even look at it. That's how much stronger he is. Uh, and his hand. His hand is holding up the seven stars. Now, the number seven is a number we're going to see a lot in Revelation. It's a number of, com- of perfection, of completion. Uh, everything is there. He's holding it up with his right hand. His, he, he signifies that. He makes that clear. It's his right hand holding the seven stars. He sees strength that is so great that it makes you feel weak. He sees strength that is so great that it makes you feel uh, like you have watery legs, like, like you can't even stand in the, the presence of it. It's like uh, going to the Grand Canyon and, and looking over the edge and you begin to get weak. You're like, oh, here I am. Death is two feet away. <laughs> it's like there's nothing I could do if I step off that ledge. Uh, you, you feel your own mortality, you feel your own weakness. It's beginning to see a little bit of what it means to, to fear the Lord. When I was a little boy, I would always ask my mom, why, why does the Bible say we should fear the Lord? And uh, bless my mom's heart. She never went to seminary, got any formal training. But I think every time she gave me an answer, she was always right. And she said, 
Uh, fearing the Lord doesn't mean fearing what he's going to do to you. Fearing the Lord means fearing what he could do to you if he wanted to. <laughs> and, and, and there's, that's, that's dead on. It's who he is. If he were not on our side, we would have, we would live in terror. He, uh, he is the great and all powerful. And that's a beautiful thing. And it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing. Uh, John, uh, trembles at God, Jesus' purity and at his strength. And then his judgment. His judgment. He sees a sword coming out of his mouth. One word from this Savior, one word from this, this vision would cut you to the core. Like uh, the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. All who heard it said they were cut to the heart. Yeah, his words, would be, you would be caught. You would know you have no recourse, no way of getting off any kind of, um, any kind of condemnation that comes from him, any word that comes from him, you have no excuse. You're just caught. You know that feeling of being caught, that, that pit of your stomach dropping feeling of being caught. I, uh, one time I was back at, when I was back at Delta State, I was a campus minister and they had a golf course that was free to the staff, so I used to play a lot. And, uh, and that golf course is funny. They got a $50,000 grant and, uh, in a move of really brilliant marketing, instead of spending $50,000 all over the course, they poured every penny of it into one green. And they made this, it's a green that comes right up to the road. It's, it's just on the other side of the fence from the street. And, uh, a lot of traffic goes up and down that road and they made it beautiful. So that when you drove by, you'd be like, Oh, that's a beautiful golf course. I'm going to go play that. And, uh, and so it was, you know, it had traps and it was elevated and it was a gorgeous play green. It was the best hole in the course. And one morning I was out playing it. I was the only one out that early and I, I hit a perfect drive, which is very rare for me. And so I was about 80 yards away from the green. I pulled out my sand wedge and I hit, uh, I, I took a full swing and I got up under the ball and I lifted it high up in the air and it came down the green, it had tons of backspin on it. It came down the green about three feet past the hole, and it rolled backwards right up next to the hole. Uh, that's what it did in my mind. Uh, <laughs> what it actually did was I did something called blading the ball. Blading the ball is when you don't get the, the edge of the golf club up under the ball. You hit it right in the middle of the ball. Instead of going way up in the air, it goes about two feet in the air, and it takes off like a scalding hound. It just, just takes off like a missile. And the ball took off and it was, uh, it went over the fairway just without even thinking about touching the ground. And it went over the green, didn't, didn't touch a thing on the green, just, and there's these trees back behind the green. I was like, well, maybe it'll hit a tree and bounce back. Nope, right between the trees. And there's a beautiful fence with, with, uh, brick pillars and wrought iron. I was like, well, hopefully it'll hit the fence. Nope, right through the fence. And there was a car, a, a Suburban, a Chevy Suburban, driving down the street. And it went straight into the Suburban. Just wham! And I was standing on the fairway all by myself, out in the wide open. The only person in the golf course just standing there caught. Just stuck. There's nobody to blame it on. I was a 30-year-old man looking for mommy, wanting to hide. Uh, just stuck. Do you know that feeling? of this? It was obviously me. I did it. That's what John he feels here. Is he sees that, that sword of judgment coming out of Jesus' mouth. He's caught. 
He's, he's, he's overwhelmed by the purity of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, the judgment of Jesus, and finally the permanence of Jesus. He looks at his feet, and they're feet of bronze. Now, this is going to make sense to you if you'll look back in uh, Daniel ever, and you'll see this vision he has of all the kingdoms of men, and they're, they're, they're represented by these precious metals and this one huge idol and all the different kingdoms, the Roman kingdom and the Persian kingdom and the Babylonian kingdom and the Grecian kingdom. Uh, and then he gets, and as he describes this, this idol, he says they have feet of clay. They're not permanent. It doesn't matter how beautiful they are, how, how glorious they are in their time. Their feet are of clay. They're going to break. They're going to fall. But not Jesus. Jesus has feet of bronze. He's here to stay. He is here to rule forever and ever. And everything that is in his way will either worship him or be trampled by him. And when John sees this, all these things together, this purity, this strength, this judgment, this permanence, he falls down at the feet of Jesus as though dead. He has the fear of the Lord. Before we go any further, let me ask you, have you seen that? Have you ever felt that? One person said, uh, the only idea that's scarier to me than the idea that we are alone in the universe is the idea that we're not. The idea that we're being seen. The idea that some there, there's something out there so great that we all came from him. It's terrifying. Have you ever had that fear? Well, what does Jesus do? How does he, how does he go from, from fear to comfort? Oh, this is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Look, I want you to see what were the, what were the things that, that John was scared of? He was scared of the right hand of Jesus, right? It had all the stars in it, all this power. What does Jesus use that power to do? He puts it on John's shoulder. He uses it to comfort him. He, 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 he straightens him up. He uses that power to say, I'm with you. How beautiful is that? To know that all that strength is there for you. It's on your side. And then, what's the other thing he feared? He feared that terrifying sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Well, what words does Jesus speak? He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't fear. Oh, how beautiful is that? Is that the word you need to hear this morning? Is that what you need to hear? Don't be afraid. How many times does Jesus say that? Go, sometime this week, go back through the Gospels and just look at all the times Jesus says that. Don't be afraid. He, uh, a man is brought before him to be healed and He's lowered in front of him and he says, don't be afraid. He takes his disciples up on the mountain and they're overwhelmed with a cloud and the glory of God, the thunderous voice of God crying out, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and, and they fall down, they're, they're terrified. And the next thing they see, and, and the, what the voice says, says, listen to him. I love this. The voice says, listen to him. And the next thing they see, they open their eyes and they see Jesus. And what were the first words out of Jesus' mouth? Don't be afraid. 
Isn't that amazing? God's voice. Listen to him. What does his voice say? Don't be afraid. The disciples are terrified of a storm on the sea. And Jesus gets up and says, don't be afraid. The, the disciples are locked in the upper room after the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And he appears in their midst. And the only thing worse than, the only thing more scary than, than him being crucified would be him reappearing, wouldn't it? And he just appears out of nowhere in their midst, and the first words out of his mouth, don't be afraid. Is that what you need to hear today? Are you afraid for your family? Are you afraid for your job? Are you afraid for your kids? Are you afraid for your marriage? Are you afraid for the future? You need Jesus to tell you, don't be afraid. Why not? Why shouldn't we be afraid, Jesus? Because I have died, and I am alive again, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I am alive. I have died. I died for you. There's nothing, you had no judgment for you to fear, because I've paid the penalty for your judgment. You don't have to fear that sword coming out of my mouth. I died for you. I paid your fine. It is. It has been nailed to the cross, according to Colossians 2. You have nothing to fear. And I am alive. Death itself holds nothing over you. I have the keys to death. I can let you out of it. I've opened the door. There's nothing more but passing from one place to another. There's nothing more frightening than going through a door for you now. Don't be afraid of the keys of death and of Hades. I have died and I'm alive forever. And I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I have brought life from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will never die. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And what's the message? What's the message? Where what's the what's the where is Jesus? What's the location? The the message we take from here, I want you to see. We we learn it from where Jesus is and where we are. First, where did where did John see Jesus? He saw Jesus in the midst of seven golden lampstands. What are the lampstands? They are the churches. Seven again, the number of completion, the church of God, all over the world, all through history. Where is Jesus? He is right in the midst of the church. He's right here. He's not somewhere far off. We don't have to beg him to come visit. We don't have to beg him to show up. I used to have a friend saying, all we need is for Jesus to show up. And I never had the courage to, but I always wanted to respond and say, all you need is the faith to see him. He's here. He's right here with us. He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's not a long way off. He's right here. Do you feel him? Do you have the faith to see him? Jesus is right in our midst. And where are we? Where are we? He says, this is the mystery of the seven stars. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. That's you and me. That's us. Where are we? We are in his hand. What does that mean? That means nothing touches us. Nothing. Not sickness. Not joblessness. Not pain. Not rejection, not sorrow, not heartbreak. Nothing touches us that doesn't pass through his hand first. Do you know that? 
You believe that? He is mighty. He is able to hold us. He does hold us. You're in His hand. What, what does that mean for you? For some of you, it means you need to stop running away. You're not going to get away. You're in His hand. He's not going to let you jump out. Now, the harder you try to get away, it might be the harder He has to squeeze you. And you don't want that. You need to rest in His hand. And some of you, you're just, you, you live your life as though everything is in your hands. And you fear. And you're so afraid. And you, you, you live like you're on some kind of tightrope. And if you do something wrong, you're going to fall into, into everlasting misery. You're in His hand. Rest in that. It's funny. It's funny having children who are adults. Uh, the, the same thing is true of children who are adults as children who are young, but you just feel it more. And uh, every now and then Bianca will say, well, what do you think about you know, this son's decision? Or what do you think about what this son's doing? And you know, I'll just be honest with her and I'll say, but I know one thing for sure. I can't control it. I can't control it. And the belief that I can is going to drive me crazy. Gonna drive him crazy. I gotta let him be in Jesus' hands. I don't know what's gonna happen in the future. You don't either. But I know it's in Jesus' hands. I know I am in Jesus' hands. And I can rest in that. And I hope that you can too. Please pray with me.